Amen. Amen. Check, check. Good morning. Morning. Can you hear me? Is that on? There we go. Good to see you. Thank you for joining together with us to consider Christ, to praise Christ uh, thus far, the appetizer. Uh, I hope that the meal is as good as the appetizer has been up to this point. Uh, That's how I should say that. The songs, especially the new song, uh, get uh, very quickly at what I I hope uh, we see this morning. Not only uh, the, the line in the creed speaking of Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate and then was crucified, dead, and buried, but that we too ought to suffer, ought to uh, be crucified with Christ, uh, ought to die to our sin uh, like Christ died Himself, uh, and even follow Him even in baptism, where we too are buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. These are truths and realities that we, we, many of us know well in our heads, but we've got to go beyond just having a knowledge of, of Christ and His sufferings and His crucifixion, His death and His burial, to see how they have implications for our lives. And I, I hope we do that well this morning as we use these two lines of the creed to go back to many different scriptures uh, to consider, again, who Christ is, what He's done for us, and who we ought to be. And we're in the midst of the main section of the creed, which is about Jesus. This creed is Jesus-centered, if you will. It is cross-centered, as ought our lives uh, to be as well. Our lives ought to be Jesus-shaped, cross-shaped. And there were a couple times this year where the symbol of the cross uh, has just stood out very clearly and plainly to me and to to my family on a couple of our weeks away. Uh, One was while we visited Washington, D.C. And maybe you, like we, had the opportunity to cross the Potomac from the main area of D.C. and go to Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, If you haven't been there, then maybe you've seen a picture of this place. And and up until earlier this year, to me it was just a picture, just a a picture that just stands out to probably many of us, seeing perfectly organized, straight row upon row, column upon column, of crosses uh, there standing as the headstone for those who have uh, lost their lives in battle or given their lives in one way or have served their country and have died in one way or another. But just the sheer volume of those bright white crosses lined up perfectly in a row just stood out in pictures much less to have been there in person and to have walked along uh, that green grass and those roadways that go between there and just as far as your eye can see this cross. And why? Why would a cross be there? Why, why would one choose a cross to be uh, uh, the headstone for one's grave? Simply because the cross is the sign of hope. It's the sign of hope for all of those who believe in Christ. 
sadly, not all who are buried in that cemetery, who even have a cross at their headstone, knew before they died the hope of Christ in the cross, nor do they know that hope now. For once they have died, then comes the judgment, and it is too late. And so we need to consider these things ourselves. The other time this year was just a few weeks ago uh, when we were driving in Montana, and over and over I saw these simple red uh, iron poles, steel poles maybe, uh, with a white cross-shaped reflector uh, almost on it. And, you know, at first I just thought, oh, that's, you know, just a Montana reflector kind of on the side of the highway keeping us off the road, but they weren't consistent. Uh, They showed up every so often, uh, and then sometimes there was a iron pole with two crosses, sadly sometimes with three or four of them at the top of these red poles. A sign, uh, uh, a symbol that the American Legion veterans had taken the cross to put as a a sign of a hope, a, a warning even, to those who were driving on this section of the highway that it's dangerous, that people have died here before, and yet as also as a, a sign of hope. But like that cemetery, sadly, uh, those who were in those accidents, many before they were in the accident, did not know the hope that comes in the cross. Uh, nor do many of those who drive by those signs. They too, uh, even if they don't know the hope of the cross, may choose to have a cross as their headstone one day. But those of us who know who Jesus is, who know what Jesus did in giving his life for us on the cross, we know the hope. We have repented of our sins and trusted Christ, and we know the hope in our own hearts. We've experienced this hope for our eternal lives. And it's our duty to live a life that represents the cross-shaped life that Jesus lived and to share that hope that we have with others. So, so Christian, let this morning be a reminder of the sober reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, His suffering, His crucifixion, His death, and His burial. But let it propel us forward to identify with Him, to be like Him, Uh, and to share this hope that we have with others as we go away from this place. I want to, as I've done in the past, just consider line by line these uh, phrases as we consider what it uh, it was that Jesus did in suffering and being crucified and dying and being buried. And I want us to remember 1 Corinthians 1.18. This is... Uh, both true of us and true of the world, for it has two truths in this one short verse. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Many of us have come to realize the power of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, and yet there are many who have not. And yet, sadly, there are some, too, who know the power of God in the cross. They know the hope of God in the cross. 
ourselves included, and there are aspects of our lives where we have allowed ourselves to fall more into the American-shaped dream rather than the cross-shaped life. We've allowed ourselves to think we deserve a certain comfort, a certain ease, a certain uh, happiness in this life, and we've fallen more towards the uh, American way of life and thinking rather than the cross-shaped life and, and way of thinking. And I hope that this morning, those of us who are Christians who know the hope of Christ in the cross would again abandon the American dreams and hold fast to the cross-shaped uh, life and death and resurrected life of, of Christ Himself. So let's consider. Let's consider first that, that first line, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, when you think about suffer, when you use the word suffer, you probably use it to describe a, a certain pain that you have experienced or that someone else has experienced. But if you use it rightly, you're using it to describe a pain uh, or a bad experience that someone doesn't really deserve. Uh, a sickness that has come upon them that they didn't ask for, that they didn't do anything to necessarily bring upon themselves, or you know, someone in a car accident suffering an injury that it just wasn't their fault. We would say that someone is suffering because of of something. We've talked about in Romans 8 that we all suffer in one way or another because of the sins of the world and the groanings of the world. Uh, and so when we're speaking about suffering, that's what we're speaking of. And that's a, especially true when we say that Jesus suffered. Because what He suffered, it was just not His fault. For He was not born, as we saw last week, with a sinful nature. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. And so the, the suffering he experienced, the death he experienced, was not his fault. In fact, it was our fault that, that he experienced that. Uh, the, the word suffer in Latin is passus, where we would get the English word passion, of which uh, many would use that word to describe the last week of Jesus' life up until His crucifixion and His death. They would describe that as the Passion Week, the Passion Narrative in our Bibles. Or, if you saw the Mel Gibson's movie years ago, uh, The Passion of Christ, it, it gets at that word, that idea of the suffering of Christ, the suffering week of Christ and this line of the creed helps us to realize that the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Jesus was historical. It happened in a real period of time. It's not just an idea. It's not just something that a group of people, you know, uh, myth, um, came up with a myth and wanted to hold that to themselves. This this is real. History. This is a historical fact. It names a person, uh, a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who was governor over Judea from AD 26 to 36. Uh, can, and can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, the only name in the entire Apostles' Creed, Pilate, your name being remembered for thousands upon thousands of years, identified with the suffering of Christ. Uh, 
liking, likening him to people as infamous as Hitler and Stalin. Pilate would be included in the same group for his misjudgment of, of who Jesus was. And yet, this is a real historical figure. Uh, in fact, there was an archaeological discovery uh, of what's called the Pilate Stone uh, that was found that has the inscription that Pilate was a prefect in Judea during that time period. And so, this line of the creed not, doesn't just make it theological in that Jesus was a suffering servant. It's a historical aspect of the creed that says this really happened. This happened in history. And not only was there a Pilate stone, but of course our four gospel writers mention it in the New Testament. And there's many other mentions of Pilate even outside of that. And Pilate is mentioned because crucifixion was the Roman form of execution during that day. And yet, the Jews who wanted him crucified were not allowed to crucify themselves. And so they needed a Roman governor to sentence Jesus to crucifixion. Which is why Pilate is highlighted here, though if it were not for the Jews demanding it, Pilate would not have been responsible for this. And yet, to fulfill prophecy, um, to fulfill so many promises of God in that his son would die, in the way in which his son would die, this is how things came about. The Jews wanted to condemn Jesus of blasphemy and kill him. They had gathered together and, and, and judged themselves that he was guilty of it. They bring him to Pilate. Uh, hoping that Pilate would, Pilate would sentence him to crucifixion. And at first, Pilate questioned Jesus whether or not, are you the king of the Jews, as they say? To which Jesus was pretty silent during those moments with, with an answer something like, you've said that I am. And not answering other questions that Pilate brought up to him. In the end, Pilate sends him out to be scourged, to be beaten, to be whipped with a cat of nine tails with uh, lashes uh, 39 to 40, which would be right at the point of death. Those of you who did see that movie, The Passion, can probably remember the moment some of those barbs entered into Jesus' body and were ripped from him. This is the suffering that Jesus experienced under Pilate. For Pilate thought, maybe I'll just have him scourged and that will satisfy the Jews. But the Jews weren't satisfied with just the scourging. They wanted him dead. They had dealt with him for three years. Had tried multiple times, but Jesus uh, evaded them. Uh, so many times in the Gospels, you'll, you'll read that he was surrounded by his enemies and yet was able to get away. Uh, it was not the fullness of time that God had planned. It was not the moment that Jesus was to die. Even Pilate's wife begged her husband 
don't have, have nothing to do with this man. For I've struggled in a dream about him this, this night. Don't, don't have anything to do with him. As a last uh, minute ditch to try to get uh, out of his responsibility, Pilate thought, well, maybe I'll put forth a murderer and say, I'll let one of these two go. Either I'll let loose a murderer back onto the streets of Jerusalem or I'll let Jesus back out. Which one do you want? To which they chose what he did not predict them to choose. They chose Barabbas. Said, set Barabbas free, crucify him. This is the suffering that Jesus experienced under Pilate because Pilate was not willing to uh, admit who Jesus was. Pilate was not willing to take responsibility, to be a courageous leader in that moment and to, to not do what the crowd wanted him to do. Ra rather than fearing God more, he feared man more and he put God to death. He sent Jesus to the cross and delivered Him over to them. And in His last uh, weak act before the people, He symbolically washed His hands of Jesus' crucifixion, which no more probably washed His hands than washed His soul at that moment. He had delivered Jesus over to death. There's no... There are countless, and I have no time to go through all of them on a week like this, uh, in the New Testament passages that refer to the suffering of Jesus. But I want us to look this morning at an Old Testament passage and see not only the suffering, uh, not, not only the crucifixion, not only the death, uh, but the burial of Jesus that also points us forward to the resurrection of Jesus next week. Look at Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah, in his uh, prophecy in the Old Testament, uh, written hundreds of years before Jesus uh, wrapped on flesh and left heaven and came to earth, Isaiah, being inspired by God, was given these words. And he was given four songs about the servant, about the Messiah who was to come. You can spend time reading through the book of Isaiah and reading four specific songs, servant songs. But it's the last servant song that I want us to look at this morning. One in which is so graphic and so specific that, that Jews choose not to read this in synagogues anymore. Be, because it so clearly identifies who the Messiah is to be and the type of Messiah that, that, we were, that they were to be looking for and that Jesus so clearly is historically described as this type of Messiah that they don't want to have this before their people. But consider Isaiah 52 verse 13 through 53 verse 3 considering the suffering of Christ. The Word of God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, 
and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. 53 verse 1 goes on says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of the coming Messiah, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And listen to verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Interesting, Isaiah, inspired by the Lord himself, says we esteemed him not, uh, looking forward to the fact that all of those who uh, trust in Christ even, at one time or another, esteemed him not. We've sinned against him. We've rejected him. And yet, in God's grace, he revealed himself, as he says in these verses. He revealed himself to us that we might see him for who he really is. This, is, this verse, again, written hundreds of years before the time of Christ, before Jesus walked this earth, tells us the type of life that the Messiah was going to live. A life uh, being despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected, being esteemed not. This is what Jesus came and did for us. He suffered at the hands of Pilate. He suffered at the hands of the Jewish men who consented him to crucifixion. This is the, the life that Jesus lived for us before he died for us. And we too are called to a very similar life. If our Savior was willing to suffer for us, why would we not too, who have trusted in him for the hope of our salvation, not be willing to suffer for his name's sake as well? We who are sent out to be the church in the world, to go and make disciples of all nations, disciples of Jesus, why would we not model to the world a life of suffering so that they might more clearly see who our Savior is? Anyone that puts forward to you that a, the Christian life is, is one that's only filled with happiness, only filled with pleasure, only filled with wealth, only filled with health, that Jesus suffered and died and was buried so that you could have your best life now is lying to you. They're not putting forth the, the life of Christ correctly. They're not putting forth the hope of the gospel. Just read the rest of the New Testament. If that were the case, then I guess Stephen and Peter and Paul and many others of the apostles didn't get it. They missed out on it. No, 
when Jesus calls us, even before he went through some of his greatest sufferings and the cross itself, he predicted that he would suffer and die. And he called those who would come after him to do the very same thing. Consider Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and following. He said to all, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Consider this question. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Imagine Pilate being asked that question. What what do you gain, Pilate, in that? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes. And in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The fruit of our lives, having trusted in a suffering Savior, a crucified Savior, the fruit of our lives must also be cross-shaped. It has to be a life one that's at least willing to suffer for Jesus. Though we do not necessarily seek suffering and don't necessarily pray for suffering. For Jesus himself prayed that suffering would escape him, but was willing to submit to the will of his Father to suffer. Our lives must follow this. We have to be prepared to follow Jesus in these things. Jesus prepared his disciples for these things in John 15 verse 18 and 19 he said to his disciples if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you and if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you Or John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our lives are not to be uh, full of ease, comfort. Uh, our, Our lives are to follow Christ, to be willing to suffer. Just like Peter encouraged the Christians that he wrote to in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even James, Jesus' brother, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. This is what the life that Jesus has called us to. 
This is the life that Paul uh, described in Romans chapter 8 and said, yet none of those sufferings will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the willing sufferings that Paul was willing to suffer himself as described in Philippians 3. After describing Jesus' sufferings in Philippians 2, Paul said, I'm willing to suffer for him. In chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, listen, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, Paul saw that his life was to seek to identify himself with Christ. And to identify himself with Jesus meant that he would be willing to suffer like Jesus. Knowing that he was actually suffering with Jesus. For Jesus had ascended to on high and sent his very spirit to be with him to the very ends of the age. And Paul saw fit to be willing to suffer. And so Christian, we know that Christ suffered, but are we willing to follow Him in suffering? That's the question for us this morning. Paul suffered at the hands of men uh, much, but he also was willing to suffer by giving up certain things for the sake of Christ. And we too ought to be willing to do that. We ought to, on one hand, be willing to give up and suffer the loss of all things that we have in this life, knowing that we have an eternal life waiting for us, a resurrected life waiting for us. And if that's the case, if we have eternity with the Lord Jesus waiting for us after these short hundred years here on this earth, then it'll, it'll cause us to be willing to suffer the loss of all of these things. We'll suffer the loss of time and give it to serving others like this weekend at Halloween at the Y. We'll suffer the loss of finances because we'll give to those who are in need. We'll give to Bible translators. We'll give to missionaries who are taking the gospel. We'll give to church planting because we want more people to know what we know of the hope in Christ. We'll suffer the loss of uh, of our homes. We'll suffer the loss of our jobs if it means you identifying with Christ and not giving up uh, worshiping Jesus and not being quiet for Jesus. Uh, if it causes your boss to look over you and look towards someone else for that promotion, so be it. You'll suffer the loss of those things because Christ is worth it and you have more than any boss or anything this world could could ever offer. You'll, you'll suffer sickness. 
You'll, you'll suffer famine. You'll suffer um, disaster. You'll suffer all of those things because you're following the Lord Jesus. But you'll also be willing to suffer at the hands of men. Uh, whatever men may take from you. You'll suffer uh, health that may be taken from you. You'll, you'll take whatever the Lord has for you in those moments. It's a both and. You'll give up certain things so that others might know the hope that you have in the cross of Jesus Christ. And you'll be willing to suffer those things that you didn't give up or didn't want to give up, but the Lord is calling you to give up uh, so that you might be um, perfected so that you might look more like Christ, so that you might persevere and endure. It's a both and. If Christ suffered, we too ought to be willing to suffer. But the creed goes on from being more just a historical uh, aspect and, and yes, a physical aspect in His suffering, but, but mentions more the physical aspect when we get at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus, who suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified in the end. While Jesus was the Creator, as we've seen in this creed, He allowed His creation to beat Him and cause Him to suffer. And while Jesus was God, he allowed man to whip him and beat him. And while Jesus was sinless, he allowed sinful men to place a crown of thorns on his head. And while he was eternal, he allowed earthly man to spit on him. While Jesus had all power, he allowed powerless men to nail him to the cross. And when Jesus could have put it all to a stop, He spoke not a word. This is our Christ who was crucified for us. Let's consider Isaiah 53 again. This time looking at the following verses in 4 through 8. And when I read these verses, I want you to consider the pronouns in this passage. Consider the R's and the us in this passage, the, the our own, the we in this passage. Look at the pronouns. Listen for the pronouns and put yourself in this passage as I read Isaiah 53, 4 through 8. Surely, again, speaking of the Messiah who was to come, who is Jesus so clearly in the New Testament, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Those verses highlight exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. Like a sheep sacrificed for the sins of the people in the Old Testament. Jesus was led away to be crucified for us. To die for us in our place. Those pronouns highlight the substitutionary nature of Jesus' crucifixion. That He died for us. That He bore our sins. Uh, That we esteemed Him stricken. It, It was our sins. The iniquities of us that were laid on Him. It shows that Jesus became our substitute. He was crucified to become our substitute. He had to shed His blood for us. For the Old Testament makes it abundantly clear, and the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why God sacrificed an animal in the Garden of Eden and gave Adam and Eve clothes to wear, not simply to be covered by the leaves of plants. That an animal had to be a substitute for the sins of Adam and Eve. That the animal died instead of Adam and Eve dying. And on throughout the whole Old Testament, even to the point of Jesus Christ. Jesus who became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And while Pilate was responsible in one way, the Bible makes it abundantly clear, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that it was He who was willing to do this. In one sense, Jesus was responsible for His own crucifixion. Consider John chapter 10, verse 11. In one of the seven I Am statements of the Gospel of John, Jesus declaring who He was, He says, in John 10:11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I have known the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my name. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And listen to verse 18. No one, Jesus says, takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority 
to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So yes, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate was responsible for the sufferings and crucifixion of Christ in one sense, but Jesus makes it abundantly clear that He was willing to do so, that He, in fact, had all authority. And if, though Pilate might have, might have sentenced Him to crucifixion, if Jesus didn't want it to happen and wanted to put a stop to it, He could have right then and there. But he didn't because he knew it was the will of his father. He knew what his death in that way would bring about. Jesus was a willing sufferer and was willing to be crucified. And he knew that this would happen. Jesus predicted three times in the Gospels that he would uh, suffer under the elders and chief priests, be killed, and on the third day raised. And yet Jesus himself prayed in Luke 22, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus and his crucifixion have become, as I described earlier, a symbol of hope for many who have trusted in Christ. Uh, folly to many, as 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, but hope for many others. Uh, the power of God for salvation for all, for many others. And it was His blood that purchased the forgiveness of our sins. And in one way, Pontius Pilate was responsible. And in another way, Jesus was responsible for He willingly gave His life. But I want you to also consider that someone else was responsible. As we sing... In Stuart Townsend's How Deep the Father's Love for Us, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Jesus stayed on the cross. Though he had authority to get back down, he stayed for all of those sheep who would repent and believe in him. He stayed for you and for I. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And it was accomplished when Jesus, in his dying breath, said, It is finished. Salvation had been accomplished. Though he hadn't, as he said he would, take up his life again, uh, it had, the, the snowball had been put in motion. Uh, the hard part had, had come. Jesus was willing to be cru crucified. And if our Savior was willing to be crucified in that way, and our hope is in a crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior, why would we not also be willing to be crucified with Christ? Uh, Christian, let me tell you, it's not enough to wear a cross around your neck or have a wall of crosses at your home and your life not be shaped by the cross of Christ. It's not enough. It's not enough to have a cross as your headstone after you die in this earth. That's not, it doesn't matter how many crosses you have on your wall because I've got a bunch. It doesn't matter how many cross necklaces or how many cross 
images you have in your life, what matters is whether or not you've truly believed in a crucified Savior and you've proven that in that your life images a crucified life. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. How can he say that? He's alive. He was not there likely. He wasn't crucified with Jesus on Golgotha. How can he say that? Because he explains it after that. I've been crucified with Christ. How? Well, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul wasn't living for the American dream. And I know, you probably say, well, America hadn't begun yet. He wasn't living for the Jerusalem dream either or for the Roman dream uh, or any other dream except for what Christ had for him. He was living the crucified life. This is why Jesus said, as I read earlier, Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. When we think of uh, uh, Jesus suffering and being crucified and us identifying ourselves with him, we need to remember Jesus marching from the Roman governor's palace to the hill of Golgotha carrying his cross until he couldn't carry it anymore. Uh, we need to remember that Jesus has called us too to carry our own cross, to live by faith in the Son of God. And when, just when we think we can't carry it anymore, uh, because we've been striving in our own strength probably, we need to remember that He's given us His very own Spirit and promised to be with us to the very ends of the age. Even if that means death, that we're willing to walk that life, to be crucified with Christ. The creed goes on, though, and mentions two other words. The other one is dead. And if the other words got at the historical and physical nature of this, the, the word dead gets at the spiritual nature of um, Jesus' suffering. Jesus really did die. And if one sense Pontius Pilate was responsible, and in another sense Jesus was responsible, and in another sense, you and I were responsible for it was our sin that held him there. Let me put forward another responsible party in this. His heavenly Father. This was a part of God's plan from the very beginning. His suffering, His crucifixion, His death, and His burial. Consider how um, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 Verse 22 makes note of this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So it was a part of God's plan, but you killed him. They're responsible. God's responsible. 
were responsible and Jesus was willingly responsible to lay down his life for us. Isaiah, again, hundreds of years before Jesus willingly laid down his life, made this clear in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Let's consider and and continue on. Verse 10, a hard verse to consider. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Consider that. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, speaking of the coming resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death. Not just his body but his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, poured out his soul to death. This was the plan of God from the very beginning for Jesus to become sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You ought to write down 2 Corinthians 5.21 next to Isaiah 53.10-12 for they're speaking the same language. And it's there on the cross when Jesus said a quote from Psalm 22, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That Jesus really experienced not, not just physical death, but spiritual death. For every man and woman who ever lived on this earth knew spiritual death in their conception and their birth. We were all born dead in our sins and trespasses. But Jesus never experienced that. He was God and He was man. And yet in that moment, He experienced the weight of the sins of all of those who would believe upon His shoulders In that moment, Jesus felt what it meant to be forsaken by God. He knew what it meant to experience spiritual death. He knew what it was experienced to suffer the wrath of God. And because He suffered the wrath of God, we don't have to. Consider Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of of God. Jesus experienced spiritual death in that moment at the hands of his Father. Pilate, uh, we 
Jesus himself, and yet the Father, all responsible for this uh, reorienting radical act in, in history. And we too have been called to die with Christ in the same way that we've been called to be crucified with Christ and die to ourselves daily, we too uh, have experienced a death, if you will. That we are, uh, as Peter mentions in 1 Peter 2.24, because He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin to live to righteousness. By His wounds we are healed. Or as Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God in Colossians 3.3. We are dead to sin. That we ought to no longer walk in it. The reason we ought to identify with Christ is because He never sinned and yet took our sin upon Him. How much more so ought our life ought to image our Savior in living dead to sin. Not letting it have any impact on us, not letting it have any part of us, doing whatever it takes to eliminate it from our lives, fighting temptation day in and day out, changing lives, changing schedules, changing patterns, changing everything so that sin has no part in our life. So that when the outside world looks at our life and it looks different than the way it used to look, we're able to point to our Savior and say, it's all for Him. Is for Him and His name's sake. He's the one helping me to do this. That our sin ought to put off all of those things that dishonor Him and put on all, all of those things that honor Him in this life. It's not just enough, Christian, for us to have a head knowledge of Jesus' death. We too ought to lay down our lives to die to sin and to not let sin have any part of our lives but then this last word, and be quickly, in Isaiah 53, 9, the prophet gets at this word as well. Jesus really did die to the point that He really was buried. And Isaiah 53 predicted this would happen in verse 9. It says, And they made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isn't it interesting to read through the Gospels then and to see that it was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body to be taken down from the cross for the Sabbath was nearing. And Joseph himself, uh, being a, a member of the, the ruling, uh, those who consented uh, to have Jesus crucified, is mentioned specifically in the Gospels as one who did not give consent. Though he was a part of that group, he was not a part of the majority. He was different. He was set apart. And it was Joseph who led the way Though he was a secret disciple of Jesus, the Bible says, was willing to go public in that time. Was willing for everyone to know that he was willing to let this Jesus have his tomb. Uh, 
Not only was Joseph willing to go public in a, at, at a point in his life following Jesus' crucifixion, uh, another person was willing to go public who had previously come to Jesus in the night, John chapter 3 says. A man named Nicodemus who, who believed that Jesus was from God and special but just did not understand the, uh, the reality of the person he was dealing with. Uh, that proved the point when Jesus said, you must be born again. No one will enter heaven unless they are born again. Born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I enter back into my mother's womb? And Jesus led him uh, and challenged him to consider who he was, to repent of his sins and believe in Jesus. It's Nicodemus who shows up with Joseph with 75 pounds of ointment. Uh, that which would uh, liken Jesus' burial to, to a true king's burial in the end. Nicodemus shows up, I think, born again, ready to honor his Savior with a burial that the true king of the Jews deserves. Both of these men, coming at night, being a secret follower of Jesus, wanting to go public and not caring who knows at that point that they're willing to follow Jesus. Jesus really did die. He really was buried. He was buried by Joseph and by Nicodemus. And in one way, the tomb points backward to the, the crucifixion and that Jesus really did die. But in another sense, the tomb points forward to what we'll talk about next week. Uh, as I said, this week is kind of like Good Friday. Next week, we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus. It'll be like Easter. And the empty tomb points us forward uh, to the resurrection of Christ. It's kind of an in-between. But it's these two men who go from being curious to being convinced that Jesus was the Son of God who suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried in the Bible, the New Testament makes it clear that all of those who follow Christ are to follow Him in a public declaration of, uh, of belief in Him, in what we call baptism. And it's in our baptism that we are likened to Christ in His burial. Just think about the imagery of one um, going under the water being buried with Christ and yet being raised to walk in the newness of life. Think about that picture of what it means to be born again as Nicodemus was talking with Jesus in that day. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We ought not just to believe that Jesus truly was buried so that we can look forward to the resurrection, but we ought to identify with Him in His burial by being baptized publicly, identifying ourselves with Christ like Joseph and Nicodemus for what we symbolize on the outside is what has happened on the inside. 
We were dead and we were made alive by grace through faith. So Christian, let's just not have a head knowledge of who Jesus is in his suffering, in his crucifixion, in his death and in his burial. Let those realities transform our daily lives, that we too would be willing to suffer, that we would be crucified to our own wants and desires in this life, dead to sin in this life moving forward, identifying with him in baptism, that we would be, uh, that our life would be cross-shaped, that when people look at our lives, they see Jesus, and they see the same type of life that he was willing to live in the Gospels that we're trying to live ourselves. May they not see the American dream-shaped life when they look at us. And if you've yet to put your hope and trust in this Jesus who was, who did suffer, who did, uh, was crucified, who did die and was buried for you, and as we'll speak about it in depth more next week, rose from the dead to conquer sin and death for you. I pray and hope that you this morning would repent of your sins and trust in Him. For He did this for you. He buried, uh, He bore your sins. He took your shame. Uh, the iniquities of us all were placed upon Him. And yet He died and He rose from the dead to offer you life. I encourage you to trust in Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning as we consider some of the most important truths and realities of who Jesus is and what He did in His suffering, in His crucifixion, in His death and His burial. May they not just be things that we remember in our head. May they not just be um, reasons to give thanks and praise, yet we should. Lord, may these realities of who Jesus is and what He did transform who we are and what we do. Remembering that we too were responsible for the death of Christ, for our sins held Him there. Lord Jesus, would You help us uh, to live a life that is cross-shaped, that images You well before the watching world that honors and glorifies you in, in every way. Lord Jesus, we now are going to remember your body that suffered and was pierced for us. Lord Jesus, we're going to remember the blood that you shed for us. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup together as your church, your bride, whom you have purchased, Lord, would you help us to give thanks and to worship and to remember? But Lord, would you also cause us to be willing to suffer, to die, to give uh, in the same way that you did. 
even to the point of death, even death on the cross. If you did it for us, Lord Jesus, why would we not be willing to do it for you so that others might know you more, so that you might be honored more before your Father? So, Jesus, as you look down upon this act of worship, as we sing and eat and drink, may you be honored, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.